0: There's a story of a noted brain surgeon by the name of Dr. Bronson Ray. And one day, Dr. Bronson Ray was taking a stroll when he saw a boy on a scooter smash headfirst into a tree. Being a surgeon, realizing that the boy was seriously injured, the doctor ran to the boy. And as a crowd began to gather around the boy, he told the bystander, call an ambulance. As he proceeded to administer first aid trauma care, a young boy, not much older than the one injured, pushed through the crowd that had gathered. And he told the noted brain surgeon, Dr. Ray, sir, I better take over now. I'm a boy scout and I know first aid. That is how we are much like most of the time. We push aside the all-wise, sovereign, powerful God, and we tell him, God, would you please move out of the way? I know what I'm doing. We push aside the God of the universe, and we tell him, God, would you just leave us alone? I think I've got this under control. Well, we really don't, but we think we do. You see, a lot of times, how we think about God, what we think about him and his character Defines the way we live this life. Defines the life of faith that we live. Sees if we live this life fearlessly or fearfully. This morning as we continue our study in the book of Daniel, entitled Fearless, we want to see again how powerful and sovereign our God is. We want to see the characteristics of the God that we worship so that we will have the confidence to stand fearless for him in this world. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verses 25 to 49. And that is the passage we're going to study this morning. Daniel, chapter 2, verse 25 to verse 49. If you have missed a few weeks or you've missed some of the series, uh, sermons in this series, would you go back uh, and take a look? at our website, and download the sermon to catch up. You see, in a book like Daniel, one concept builds on another. One story builds up on another. And if you, you happen to miss a week, you're going to miss a lot of exciting things happening in this book. And we understand that perhaps you can't be here every week. But if you do miss a week, uh, go to our website, download uh, the sermon, the MP3, or listening to it online so that you'll be able to be caught up. The sermons are put on the website the Tuesday after they are preached, after they go through some editing uh, to take out some of the background noise and whatnot. Uh, and there you can listen to the sermon again. Now, as you turn to Daniel chapter 2, verse 25 to 49, you will remember that two weeks ago we talked how King Nebuchadnezzar had a very troubling dream. And he wanted the interpretation to this troubling dream, and so he called all of his magicians together in his realm And he told his magicians and his soothsayers, Would you please not only tell me the interpretation, but I need you to tell me the dream. He had not forgotten his dream. He wanted to see if these magicians would be able to tell him the accurate interpretation. Because if they could tell him the interpretation, then they must be able also to tell him the dream. Well, none of them could do that. And in his frustration and in his anger... He commanded that all the wise men of the land be killed. However, Daniel, relying on the strength and the wisdom of the one true God, approached the king and told him, King, give me some time. I can reveal to you the dream and its interpretation. Because my God can do this. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 26 of chapter 2. Daniel is about to reveal the prophetic dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 26 of chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Note the question that Nebuchadnezzar poses to Daniel. Daniel, are you able, are you personally able to tell me the dream and its interpretation? Now, the answer of Daniel in verses 27 to 30 will give us a glimpse into the heart of Daniel. It will give us a glimpse into the way Daniel thinks. It will give us a glimpse into the theology of Daniel that drives his life. It will give us a glimpse into how he views God, which enables him to have the confidence to allow him to stand fearless even before kings. Look at verses 27 to verse 30. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare it to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have no more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who has made known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. The king had posed a question to Daniel. Daniel, are you personally able to tell me the dream and its interpretation? Look how Daniel directs the king away from himself towards the one true God. He says, King, I'm no wiser than your wise men. I'm not, I'm not smarter than them. I'm not much greater than them. But let me tell you about my God. My God is able to reveal secrets. The God of heaven whom I worship, he is the one who is able to make known the dreams and its interpretation. Daniel could have very easily taken credit, but he realized long ago that it was not about him. He had no power, but it was the power of the Almighty that allowed him to do what he was able to do. You see, my friends, there we can extrapolate a great spiritual principle. To stand fearless, first of all, we must acknowledge our inability. We must acknowledge our limitations. You see, standing fearless before the world is not about how good you are. It's not about how eloquent you are. It's not about how tall you are. It's not about how good-looking you are. It's not how much education you have. It's not about your theological expertise. It's not about how many Sunday school you've sat through. It's not about how long you've been a Christian. It's never been about you. To stand fearless before the Lord is to understand that you are nothing, but that you trust in a God who is able. You have placed your confidence in someone who is able to do all that we can ask. You put your trust in someone who is more powerful than you. This is the secret of being able to stand fearless. You see, my friends, we all get scared. We all feel inadequate to a certain extent. We all have our insecurities. That's the problem of what makes us go crazy half the time. We all have our insecurities, insecurities to be like, insecurities of not being able to measure up. But to be able to stand fearless, we must acknowledge that we are unable, but that the God of heaven, the one true God, He alone is able. He alone is able to reveal secrets. Uh, A great implication that Daniel says that my great God is more powerful than your little gods, little g. The God's magicians were not able to tell the king its dreams and its interpretation. But my God is able. To stand fearless is to acknowledge your God. Is to acknowledge and place confidence in a God that is great. A God that is sovereign. A God that is almighty. The problem for a lot of Christians is that we have put our God into a little box. Our God is not able to solve my problems. Our God is not able to cure diseases. Our God is not able to provide for me. And yet every time God is revealed in the scriptures, he is a God who is able to do the impossible because he is the one true God. No wonder we cower in fear because our God for us is very small. He fits in the palm of our hands. But our God is greater than that. And that is how he's about to reveal himself, not only to Daniel, But to the king of Babylon and those who heard. Here in verse 31 to verse 35, Daniel will reveal the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. And here is that dream, verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thigh of bronze. It's legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watch while the stone was cut out without hands, who had struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was a dream of Nebuchadnezzar that greatly troubled him. Here God has revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar his plan for the ages. He has revealed five empires, five kingdoms that will begin with Babylon and end with God's kingdom. And in verse 36 to verse 42, Daniel will interpret the dream as God has revealed it. Look at verse 36 to verse 38. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hands and has made you ruler all over them. You are this head of gold. Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar that he represents the head of gold. Here we see that God has instituted kingdoms. And God has placed King Nebuchadnezzar in the seat of power over the Babylonian Empire. And historically we know that the Babylonian Empire was the first great empire of the ancient Near East. And he says in verse 37 you o king are a king of kings he is the greatest of kings we're going to see how powerful the babylonians was the god of heaven has given you a kingdom power strength and glory and we know historically that the babylonians were a very powerful people they were a very smart people god gifted them with many different cultural phenomenon and great wisdom Their empire spanned from modern-day Iraq in the east all the way to the Mediterranean in the west, Turkey in the north, and all the way to Egypt in the south. And if you were to enter ancient Babylon, this was the first great cosmopolitan city. You would have been in awe and in wonderment at the magnificence of this ancient Babylonian city. It was really truly one of the ancient wonders of the world. And if you would have led through the procession street, you would have passed by the famous Ishtar gates. And there they were able to to dig up uh, and see some of the reliefs, beautiful reliefs that uh, the Babylonian artisans had created. It was meant to be awe-inspiring. And Daniel and his three friends, having been plucked out from the poverty that was Judah, and brought to the height of glory of the ancient Near East, must have sat in awe and wonderment. There is no greater a city in the ancient Near East, in the known world, than was the city of Babylon. In fact, a lot of our mathematical principles uh, that the Babylonians discovered through their Akkadian numeric system are the same mathematical principles we use today. A lot of uh, their astronomical charts, which their astrologers had looked into the heavens and had studied, are as accurate as the charts today. Uh, the Babylonians developed the first modern road system. A lot of the road systems in the ancient Near East were simple gravel pits that brought them from one place to another. Uh, really a, a convoluted network of roads. And yet the Babylonians realized and figured out that the most effective road systems are the grid system. It's to use a grid system for roads. And we use that today in, in city urban planning. Uh, to get the most efficient road systems and the babylonians figured this out we know about the famous hanging gardens of babylon where one of the queens of babylon missed very much her home and so the king in tribute to her built the great hanging gardens of babylon so that she wouldn't get so homesick it was uh, one of the ancient wonders of the world the babylonian kingdom under the rule of nebuchadnezzar was indeed powerful And that's why the Bible says he can be referred to as the king of kings. The Babylonian king yielded absolute power. What he said was law. On the whim of the Babylonian king, anything could happen. And he could change his mind every minute and it would be law. But there would be four other kingdoms that follow, historically and biblically, the kingdom of Babylon. Look at verse 39 to verse 40. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. The Bible tells us hundreds of years before it actually happens that three other nations will follow. They are after the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, followed by the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. Note in verse 39, the Bible says, each empire will be inferior to the one before it. And we see that this is true. Although geographically, each empire that follows Babylon is actually enlarged, it's increased. Yet each empire's leader, each emperor that follows, does not have much power as the preceding kingdom. We see this in the Persian king that comes after the Babylonian kings. The Persians, the Persian king could make law from his own mouth. But once he established a rule of law, he as the king could not change it. And we see this in Daniel chapter 6, when... Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. Even the king of Persia could not change his sentence. The Babylonian king, on the other hand, could change law on his whim. The next king were the Greek emperors. And the Greek form of government, with its republican form of government, gave more power to its people and less to the rulers. The Greeks were followed by the Romans... And the Roman Empire, with its democratic form of government, with its people and Senate, played major roles in setting policies. And they, in fact, controlled the emperors more than had been true in preceding empires. And so we see biblical prophecy is very true, it is perfect. God said each subsequent king and kingdom will have less power than the preceding one. Now, I know that a lot of you love biblical prophecy. It's one-fourth of the Bible. And as we study Daniel chapter 7 to chapter 20, uh, chapter 12, we will study these empires in more detail. But in chapter 2, we get, a, we get an overview. We, we get a glimpse, uh, a great background. And so I just want to give you a, a little bit of a background about these four empires, if you especially if you're not a history majors, uh, but just so that you can see the hand of God at work, so that you can see what he prophesied hundreds of years before, happens because god is not only sovereign of our lives he is sovereign over this world he sets up and he takes down empires according to his will the second empire that follows babylon is of course persia noted by the breasts and the arms of silver the persian empire is made up of two distinct people group the medes and the persians and their empire uh, spans east uh, in what is now modern-day iran so, the Iranians are still known as the Persians, all the way east of the Mediterranean, south to Egypt, and north into the Caspian Mountains uh, of the Balkans, as well as Turkey. Uh, if you know historically about the Persians, biblically, they also play a very important role in biblical history. A few, years ago, a few years ago, we did a series on the book of Esther. Those messages are also online in the website, if you'd missed that wonderful series. But. Uh, The Persian Empire uh, is the setting for the book of Esther. And if you remember, Queen Esther was chosen out of all the women in a beauty pageant by King Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus. Historically, King Xerxes had brought a million men to try to conquer Greece. But they were turned back, especially at the Battle of Plataea, naval battle. And so when Xerxes came back to Persia, he was a grouchy man. He wasn't very happy. He had just lost a fighting force of a million men. And so he wanted some love in. And so he called his wife Vashti. Vashti, would you please come out and would you comfort me like only a wife can comfort me? But Queen Vashti had uh, had her own agenda and her own plans and she did not come. And so King Xerxes got rid of her, held a beauty pageant. And that's how we get Queen Esther. But in the midst of all this, we see God's sovereignty at work. And God put Esther in a prime position for such a time as this, so that he could use her to save his people against the wiles of Haman. The Persian Empire is also the setting of the book of Nehemiah in the scriptures. The king that followed Xerxes is a man by the name of Artaxerxes, And Nehemiah was his cupbearer. And remember, Nehemiah had pleaded and had prayed that God would rebuild Jerusalem. But God especially placed Nehemiah as the cupbearer to the king. And through Nehemiah, that was sent by Artaxerxes of Persia, he was able to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in accordance with biblical prophecy. The third empire is the Greek empire, shown by the belly and the thighs of brass. And the Greek empire spanned from Greece uh, in the west all the way to India in the east. You see, for hundreds of years, the Greeks couldn't get their act together. Uh, They were fiercely independent, and they had what we call a city-state form of government, kind of like Singapore and uh, and Hong Kong. Uh, And these city-states never got along with each other, and they fought uh, the Greek wars. Uh, You know, they they really pretty much looked out for themselves. Uh, The Spartans uh, from the city of Sparta uh, were concerned about military conquest, and they were the warriors of Greece. And they are made known in uh, the famed battle of Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans fought off hundreds of thousands of Persians. You have the Athenians, who are the intellectuals, and all they cared about was thinking. And, and the philosophers of, of Aristotle and, and Socrates and Plato came out of Athens. And all they did was to think around and philosophize. And they were never in a fighting mood. And then you have the Corinthians. The Corinthians were from the city of Corinth, which lay on a major trade route. And they were the businessmen of Greece. And all they cared about was, was doing business. And, and so you have these cities with differing interests, never united together. And therefore, never being able to pull out their best resources to be one empire. And yet, one day, Philip of Macedon came and united the Greek people. Philip of Macedon, from the area of Philippi, of which it is named after him. Philip of Macedon came and said, Hey, Greeks, if we often got our act together and we work together, we could be a pretty much an amazing fighting force. And that's exactly what happened. And they were able to push back the million men of Xerxes. And the Persians never came again. Well, they loved him so much that they killed him. Uh, They killed uh, Philip. uh, And so his son, Alexander the Great, became emperor. And Alexander the Great was a brilliant young man, an amazing military strategist. And the reason I mention this, because of hundreds of years before Alexander the Great comes into the picture... The Bible will prophesy about him in chapter 7 to chapter 12. That is how you know biblical prophecy is true and it is perfect. That is how you know that our God reigns supreme. And Alexander the Great comes and he uses military strategies such as the phalanx. And we'll talk more about this. And he will conquer. He will conquer all the way into India. And then his troops got homesick. And they got homesick and said, we want to return home, Alexander. And so, begrudgingly, they went back home, but he was killed in a battle. And that's why pictures of, Alexandra are always, of Alexander the Great is always pictured with him being very young. Because he died at a very young age in his 30s. His kingdom would then be divided into four kingdoms, ruled by four generals. And again, the Bible will prophesy about this in the book of Daniel. And we'll see how history and biblical prophecy goes hand in glove. It fits perfectly in. That is how you know that our God is sovereign. Then we have the rise of the Roman Empire, the legs of iron. And here, the Romans will rise up. They will improve upon the tactics. Uh, they will improve, about, they'll, they'll improve upon everything that was Greek. They are what we call the Japanese uh, of the ancient world. They took something that was already invented and they just made it better. And that's exactly what the Romans did. The Romans, uh, their empire will span west all the way from España or Spain all the way to east, that is modern-day Iraq. Their northern borders would go all the way up to Britannia, which is modern-day United Kingdom, all the way to the northern Gaul area, which is the Germanic tribes. Uh, Then it goes all the way south uh, to Carthage uh, in northern Libya. And so for them, the Mediterranean Sea was their lake. It was often called the Roman Lake because Rome pretty much conquered the known world. Their leaders were the Caesars of old, and they, didn't, they had a lot of power, but they did not have absolute power like the Babylonian kings. The Caesars still had to go under the will of the people in the Senate of Rome. But the Romans had great architectural wonders. They helped use and, and modified and, and bettered the concepts of the arch. And so you have a lot of arches that are used uh, in Roman architecture, uh, as well as uh, they love sports. And that's why Paul in his epistles often referred to a lot of sports analogies, because it was the culture of the Romans for athletic competitions. And they would build things like the Circus Maximus, which was really kind of the first horse racing track um, in modern time, in ancient times. And um, this was made famous if you ever watched uh, uh, the famous movie Ben Hur uh, from a generation past, where they raced horses around this. And uh, before CGI technology, they took two years uh, to film a 20 minute scene uh, in that movie, the Circus Maximus. They had the Colosseum, and the Colosseum was uh, the modern-day uh, equivalent of, of our own Colosseums here. And the ancient Colosseums could, could fit 20,000 people. Can you imagine that? And there they would have gladiator fights and whatnot. Uh, really, again, a, a sports, uh, a mecca for, for drawing sports and, and other things. The, this architectural wonder, they were able to, to flood it. Uh, open up to some chambers flooded, and they would reenact famous naval battles from history. That's that's how amazing the Romans were. Just think about that. They had the technology to simulate water battles in the ancient Colosseums. They figured out how to bring water from the springs of the seven hills of Italy and bring them right into Rome. That's why if you go to Rome today, there's a lot of ancient fountains. Uh, They're still built upon the ancient aqueducts. Of, uh, of of Roman engineering, uh, and so you have a lot of that as well too. And yet the Bible says the Roman Empire will be destroyed, and it was historically. Now, in verses forty-one to verse forty-three, we jump to the future from our present perspective. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, everything was future, but we've seen these first four kingdoms come and go. As God had prophesied. But in verse 41 to verse 43, we see that there is a revival of the fourth empire. Look at verse 41 to verse 43. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay... So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Here we see that the feet and the toes of this statue are made up of iron and clay. Here it refers to a revival in the future of a Roman Empire. And the Bible tells us in the book of the Revelation... And it is revealed and further explained in Daniel chapter 7 to chapter 12 that there is a revival of the Roman Empire during the time of the Great Tribulation. In the future, ten nations will rise up. You see, in verse 43, it's not one nation anymore. It's not one empire. It's ten. The iron is mixed with clay. They will not adhere to one another. They are ten distinct nations, just as iron does not mix with clay. God will raise up an empire, the revived Roman Empire. And its leader will be the Antichrist. And we'll talk more about that in subsequent chapters of the book of Daniel. And the Antichrist will stand atop this revived Roman Empire. Uh, We see it today, even in today's newspaper. Europe is consolidating. Europe is coming together. 20 years ago, everyone in Europe did their own deal. Everyone in Europe did their own thing. But because of the realization that if they work together, they could be more powerful than the United States of America. They could be a great economic force. And that's why we have the euro. And that's why people in Germany are helping the people out in Greece. Just look at today's newspaper. People in France have just passed a package to help people in Portugal. Because they realize that they need to coalesce as a group together. And that's what the Bible has been saying all along. There will be a revival of the European nations, and as we get closer to the coming of Christ, we will see this more and more. The Antichrist will be made known at the time of the Great Tribulation, and he will rule over these ten nations. In fact, the Bible talks about tensions within these nations, and the book of Daniel will reveal that to us, and we see that today. There is tension amongst the European nations. They will not mix together. They will not be as strong as the Roman Empire from a generation past. But the wonderful thing is that as we study these kingdoms, we realize that God is always in control. And God has revealed it to us, not so that we can simply be fascinated with what will happen next, but more importantly, that we will see that God is in control. That God knows what he's doing. That God is sovereign. There is the fifth kingdom. Look at verses 44 to verse 45. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke, it, it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. The fifth kingdom is the promised messianic kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ will come, At the end of the great tribulation, and he will bring us, his saints, and he will come and he will establish his millennial kingdom after he defeats Satan and defeats the Antichrist, after the battle of Armageddon. He will come and he will establish his kingdom, and it will reign forever and ever. In other words, in this overview of God's plan for the ages, God's kingdom will come. He will make things right. He reigns supreme and he will crush all the other kingdoms, including the kingdom of the Antichrist. And they will be like chaffs in the wind, not a remnant of these evil kingdoms will survive. Look, just look at the description in verse 44. It will never be destroyed. It will never be conquered. It will be ruled by God, means it will not be left to other people. Verse 44, it will defeat all earthly empires and power, and it will stand forever and ever. This is the promised messianic kingdom. And my friends, you are a part of this kingdom. So let me ask you the question, what in the world are you afraid of? The kingdom of God will stand forever. And you are a part of this kingdom. So what in the world are you afraid of? You are on the winning team. The God of the universe who reigns supreme is a very same God we can call in the most intimate of terms, our Heavenly Father, our Abba Father. He is for us. He is there to see His kingdom come. What do we have to be afraid of? We forget a lot of times that we serve the risen Savior. We forget a lot that He will establish His kingdom forever. So what if your business fails because you have stood on principles and conviction? His kingdom will reign forever, of which you are a part. So what if people don't like you because you stand for the Lord? His kingdom will reign forever. So what if you don't get all the things that other people have in this world? His kingdom will stand forever. And you are a part of that kingdom. I don't know why King Nebuchadnezzar was so scared of this dream. I can only conjecture, perhaps, that it was his face that he saw on this statue. And he, as we find out from history, is a very prideful man, a very egotistical man. And it troubled him so that every time he dreamt this dream, he saw that his Face his kingdom and the kingdoms that come after him would be destroyed and shattered by a stone that was carved out of a mountain, not with hands. He was scared because God was placing in his heart the realization, Nebuchadnezzar, I rule this world. I am in control. And for a man who likes to be in control, that is the hardest thing to accept. That is the hardest thing to accept to not be in control. And it so scared him that he said, I need to get this one right. And God revealed it to Daniel as a messenger to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, my kingdom will reign forever. Don't you forget that. Now look at the reaction of Nebuchadnezzar of verse in verse forty six. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before God, Daniel. And commanded that they should present an offering and incense to God. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And chief administrator over the wise men of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the prime minister. And Daniel petitioned the king and he said, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat at the gate of the king. Look at the response of the king when he came to an acknowledgement, when it was shown to him the sovereignty of God, even over nations. He fell prostrate. That means he, he got on the ground and he just laid there. Can you imagine a king of his distinguished nature? The king of kings. The man whose words became law to prostrate himself And admit, in verse 47, Daniel, your God, is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Your God is amazing. That was the response of a pagan king when it was shown to him the power and the might of God. That should put us to shame. Because if a pagan king can do that, what about us? When we as his children, who can call him Abba Father in the most intimate of terms, and when someone asks us, tell me about your king, we just step back and say, "Ah, you don't want to hear much about him. When someone says, what's up with your faith? What can your God do? And we say, well, I don't want to argue with you. And so we we cower in fear. If a pagan king can prostrate himself when God reveals who he is, how about us? When God reveals himself to us every day, when we know his power, why is it? that we cannot say he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he rules in my life, and he rules over this world. It is because we have put God into a little box. And we say, God, do not escape from this box I have put you in. I'll take you out when I need to take you out. I'm sorry. My friends, but that is now how, that is not how God is to be treated. The re- proper response of his people, when they are shown the power of God, the proper response is to stand fearless. And to proclaim as a pagan king can proclaim, the true God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To acknowledge the greatness of God with our lips. And then the cower in fear is not to believe in the sovereignty of God. We know, I hope you do, about the power of God. How is that truth manifested in your life? How is that truth lived out in your life? To know that God's kingdom would never fail. To know that he is sovereign. That he brings up government, and he takes them down at his own will. And that you are a part of that kingdom, and that you are his children. If you really believe that, and you bring it from your head to your heart, then you will be able to stand fearless. You will be able to stand at that street corner and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will be able to stand before your boss and your king and your coworkers and your colleagues and your friends and your families risking rejection and saying, My God reigns. Can you do that? How big is your God to you? For some, apparently not so big. But God has shown himself great. And God has shown himself big. He told King Nebuchadnezzar, and he told the courtesans, and he tells us, my kingdom will never fail. We talk about worship all the time. But we forget that an aspect of worship is when we stand fearless. Fearless. We worship God with the way we live out our lives. And we worship God when we stand fearless before others and we say, my God reigns. Will you be called to that challenge? Will you be called to stand fearless? I know it's, it's easier said than done. I know it's hard. But you have to personally bring it from a head knowledge concept and live it out in your life every day. My God reigns. My God is able. My God is powerful. My God has saved me and He will protect me. He has made me a member of His kingdom. My God will bring forth all of the promises that He has made. My God reigns. How do you bring this in application? You will hear it ad nauseum. The 168 challenge. That's the one thing we're going to work on to together. And I hope that you take up this challenge. Some of you may not even care. And you say, I don't want to do this. I don't want a part of this. You know what? That's between you and God. And I feel sorry for you because you're going to miss out on doing something for God. But the 168 challenge, for those of you who are new, the one, bring someone to church. Invite them. Please, as a word of disclaimer, do not bring someone who goes to another church. We're not recruiting them from another church. They're already happy where they are. Bring someone who you've been praying for. Bring someone uh, who who, who you think it's going to be impossible to bring and see God work. Pray for them. See God work. Six new friendships. Make six new friends with people you don't know, you haven't met before in church. Perhaps today, someone sitting next to you, they are not strangers. We're all part of this family. Six in six months. That's easy. A lot of you have been doing this. Thank you. A cheap plug to November 30. If you want to get your six done really quickly, come to November 30. Probably 300 plus people will be there. All from our church family. And, and, and come and get to know your six. There it is. Or no more. <clears throat> the eight. There are eight church cards that we'd like you to pass out. If you don't know what we're talking about, uh, please go to the back of the usher table and get one. Please make, take the initiative and do something. Go to the back of the usher's table and get one. It's there. And just eight of them. Eight of them. Your Christmas parties are about coming up. November one's coming up. You go to the cemetery. I was at a wedding last night. And a great opportunity. I handed out two cards to people who used to come to church and had had had, had, had walked away from the Lord. The opportunities will come. You just got to be proactive about it and pray through it. Each of these things require that you stand fearless. And here's the thing, you may be rejected. You may get a hundred no's. You know what, thanks but no thanks, I don't do the church thing. Thanks but no thanks, I don't need your card. It's fine. I know we can't deal with rejection. But remember, our God reigns. His kingdom will come. And you are doing the work of the kingdom. And so you're in the mission. It's, it's pity on them if they cannot do it. But you are worshiping and honoring God in what you do. Look at your social context. Look at the community in whom God has placed you in. And that is the mission field that God has called you to minister to. You remember the Daniel diet. Resolve to do it. If you don't resolve to do it, you'll never do it. If you don't say, I'm going to do it, you're not going to do it resolve to do it step two: ask god for help god i need your help i don't know what i'm doing ask him for help and then see god work see him at work and there's a lot of exciting stories i've already heard how god has worked through this 168 challenge and we want to know about them so that we can share with you um uh, on a sunday morning or on a saturday evening let us know uh, there is a, an email address in your bulletin we really want to know your stories And we want to mutually encourage each other with these stories. So I hope you'll take up this challenge. I I heard a story yesterday, and I thought it was kind of funny. I'd like to share it with you. Uh, There was a a family that was uh, going to church last week, car driven by someone going to church last week and uh, made an illegal right turn where they weren't supposed to and was pulled over by the MMDA Uh, coming to church. Uh, now, uh, the policeman uh, came up as they always do and, uh, uh, began to barter for some money, uh, began to ask for a bribe. Well, uh, this individual would not pay the bribe because, you know, you're going to church and to pay a bribe right before you go to church. Probably not the best thing. And, and, and told the policeman, I'm going to church. The policeman didn't believe it. It just so happened he had one of these church cards in his wallet And he pulled out the church card and showed it to the policeman. After looking at it over, he said, okay, you can go now. I'm telling you these little cards have power. (laughs) And there's no excuse why you shouldn't have one of these in your purses or in your wallets. You don't know when you can use it to get out of a ticket. But uh, I hope you use it more than that. But uh, there are a lot of other stories, and we'll share them with you uh, in the weeks ahead. But it, it, it takes, it's not for me, and it's not for this church, as I told you the first week. It's really for you. And it's for you to, to, to step out of your comfort zone and do something fearless for once, for the Lord's sake. And I know he's going to do some amazing things, as he already has. So I pray that you will take up the challenge. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of Daniel and the great revelation into his life and into his heart. How he viewed himself as nothing but always clung on to the God who is able. May that be our attitude as well to acknowledge that we are nothing apart from the God who is able. But also, Father, to live out the truth that the God who reigns And the God, who is sovereign, works every day in my life so that I do not need to cower in fear, that I can stand with boldness for him. Bless the people here this morning. Call them to action. Give them confidence to boost. All for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.